Welcome back to another episode of Effortless Conversations. Our guest this week is Mark Gordon, CRO at Princeton Mortgage. Uh, What's a CRO? The way I understand it, it's a Chief Revenue Officer, right? Perfect. So uh, tell me a little bit about that, Mark. Yeah, I mean, so that's my fancy title for Head of Sales. Um, but really, it should be more than that as we go forward in terms of uh, looking for acquisition targets and maximizing you know, deliverables on our secondary marketing revenue and making sure that we're signed up with the right vendors and partners to, to basically maximize the top line revenue of the organization. But really, most of the time, it's just like head of sales. Okay, so I, I, once I heard CRO, I, I naturally asked the question, what's the difference between a CRO and a CFO? So totally different, right? So okay. uh, a CFO. This is, is, shows my ignorance. I'm sorry to no, catch you. <laughs> well, I don't think most people know. And so, and here, here's the thing, right? So, like at most companies, the head of sales is like one of the most important people in the company. But there is no C-level title. That's like, you know, sometimes you see like chief sales officer or like mortgage company. You'll see chief production officer. Um, and I, after a lot of back and forth and figuring out kind of what my strengths are and what I actually do here, I thought chief revenue officer made the most sense, and so did Rich, and so. That's what we went with, but um, you know, it's so. But a CFO or um, is somebody is an accounting position, right? And so that person's job is really to be responsible for what your controller does, which is look backwards and count the beans and figure out if we made money or lost money and where it went. And then your CFO is really in charge of your forward projecting. Um, you know, look forward as to what profitabilities are going to be and what revenues are going to be, and then really try to make recommendations for opportunities to either avoid, you know, it's a, it's a defensive position almost in terms of avoiding surprises or, you know, being prepared for the next pandemic or and how, what that does to your to your finances and those types of things that a CFO would be looking to do. So it's really a projection-based accounting position. Chief Revenue Officer is very simply, I'm going out and figuring out what we're going to sell and how we can make the most money on it and our strategy for marketing those products and selling those products and recruiting the people to do it and um, building out the systems and strategies that our sales team is going to use and really uh, working on with the product team and the fulfillment team to make sure that they are giving us the things that we need to be able to go and sell that product. And so in in a mortgage sense, very simply it is figuring out what our strategy is for where we want to grow our team, where we want to bring on loan officers, how we can create an environment where those loan officers get better uh, here than they would somewhere else. Um, and the loan officers then becoming, and the brokers on our wholesale side, but you know, but loan officers and brokers, they're our customer, right? They're going out and finding customers. We need to create an environment where their customers are happy. But really, if loan officers are happy working here and brokers on our wholesale channel are happy working with us, then they're going to deliver customers to us. and so. Um, so really, it's how do we attract those brokers and loan officers to come here, and how do we help them thrive once they do? So you're really leading the vanguard with sales, recruiting. I mean, all the major pillars of the company. Yeah, for well, for last year I was leading all recruiting. Now we uh, have separated non-sales recruiting uh, under people operations, and, and that's reporting into to Rich as CEO, um, which is great because it allows me more time to focus on sales recruiting and development. But yeah, so it's. It's recruiting loan officers, it's making sure that we have everything we need to attract the best loan officers, and then to make them raving fans once they're here. And then, you know, one of the things I've noticed is that you're, you're, the happier your loan officers are, the more they're able to bring in production because unhappy loan officers get unhappy because they're focused on doing things that are outside the job of production or prospecting, right? Um, and so if they're worried about their loans closing or they're, they're worried about their marketing not working correctly or if they're worried about whatever the answer is, they, it's less time they can go out and find new business. And so what we wanted to do is create 
a system where loan officers could spend a minimum of 10 to 12 hours a week doing nothing but prospecting and then giving them amazing marketing support so that every one of the collisions they have in that prospecting is maximized through an automated process where we're staying in front of those prospects over time. And so that's kind of, you know, that in our coaching program, which is supported by that entire process, is our unique value proposition to the loan officers that we're trying to recruit. And this is the Princeton selling system you're speaking of, right? Yeah, it's the Princeton selling system, which you know is is an amalgamation of the stuff that we stole from the people we admire the most, right? And totally uh, fair. Yeah, no, I mean, and you know, that's one of the things I one of the reasons I came to Princeton. I've kind of told this story a couple of times, but you know, I had learned a lot of lessons through pain, million dollar mistakes that I've made over the course of my career, having my own business, running my own branches, doing those different types of things. When I met Rich, um, he had. Uh, some really awesome life experience, Goldman Sachs, uh, you know, shopping centers, investments, and different things like that, but none really on the mortgage side, but he had read everything there was to read, and he had read, for, you know, not just the mortgage industry, but business books and sales books, and so I'd be like, here's what I think, and he'd be like, oh yeah, here are the four theories, or the, the you know, and these other companies that do this thing, and I was like, and he was younger than me, and I thought that was just amazing, and so, you know, I had my own business for a long time, I didn't expect to ever be working for anyone again, but I realized immediately when I met Rich, I was like, oh, this is what I need to make me better. The things that things that I've avoided in my career where it was like, you know, I used to sort of like make fun of people who learn everything from reading books. I'm like, you gotta get out there and do it. And yes, that's true also. Um, but, you know, since I came to Princeton, I've probably read about a book a week, you know, maybe a slightly less than that. And uh, it's transformed my ability not only to continue to build on my ideas, but then also be able to communicate those ideas to somebody else where it's not just like, hey, this is the theory of Mark. It's like, no, like here are the people who did this the best and here's them explaining it in a way that sometimes is better than the way I can explain it. And so, um, you know, that's that's my, essentially my job here, right? Is to, is to marry those different things and, and work cross-functionally to make sure our loan officers are happy. Yeah, that's something that I've noticed since coming to Princeton <clears throat> is um, the executive team is very adamant about sharing their knowledge that they've read. Like uh, the marketing team, <clears throat> excuse me, the marketing team is reading uh, Creativity Inc. right now, which I know you recently read. But it's so nice to be able to have all of us kind of on the same page, reading the same ideas and being able to build off of those as well. Yeah, I, mean, I, think, I think that book's a perfect example, right? So if Courtney comes in here and she's like, we should do this thing. You're like, cool, Courtney, like that makes sense, you know, and I know that I have a lot of respect for you, but like, you know, uh, you, maybe there's a part of it that you just intrinsically don't like. And so you're like, you get dismissive of that thing because we're humans and we want to think that we know or we've had our own experience with it or maybe it doesn't work for you in a way that feels good in that moment. So that happens, that's human nature. But if Courtney's like, hey, read this book, Creativity Inc. This is the story of Pixar. And this is how they outperformed 10X, everyone else who was trying to do the thing they were doing. And they took Disney, you know, Disney was struggling and they crushed the creative process to the point where Disney just kind of quit and gave up and said, okay, we'll buy you. And and uh, Steve Jobs was attracted to these guys and, 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 and was involved in that at Pixar. And you're like, and then you read about it and it's like, Okay, here, and it's not like they came out of that, the gates with that. It was like, here is the 20 year journey we went on to figure out the best way to do these different things, and here's what worked, and here's what didn't, and, and here's how, you know, here it is in this form that you can take and use for your own stuff. It's like, okay, cool, now it's not just like Courtney's thing. It's like, Courtney's saying it's worked for her, I can see it working here, this worked for these guys. It marries the thing I learned also from Ray Dalio's book, Principles, and now it's like, okay, it's very easy to get your team bought in on a vision, right? And everybody's coming to that table now with their own interpretation of what they read in Creativity Inc. or what they took from Principles. And so the more power of everybody sh having that information to share is gonna lead to better outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, sorry, I just blanked out there toward the end. 
I'm not gonna be able to go raw. <laughs> no, it's cool. Listen, we're uh, you know, it's uh, I get going and I can't stop. No, I like it, dude. I just I get caught up listening to you. You're 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 such an interesting guy. You're very obviously very educated. You've read a lot of books, and you say that a lot of that started when you met Rich because he had read so much, and you weren't really a reader before that, right? No, I mean the only books I really read before coming here, I, I read the Jim Collins books, um, mm -hmm. which is by the way they've been foundational for me here as well, but. Um, I think I was in an airport and I saw this and I was like, you should read this book or whatever. So like I read like Good to Great and like that was huge for me because through the use of stories about companies that I knew a little bit about, they were able to kind of differentiate what made certain companies good versus great companies or a great CEO versus a bad CEO and some of the other books in there. And so I was really attracted to those books, but it was hard for me to find time to do it. That's at least the story I'm telling myself is, you know, I was... I thrust myself into the CEO role because I was able to raise money to build a company um, before I was ready and before, and I didn't have um, access to mentors. Um, you know, one of the things that, you know, Rich was telling some stories last week and he was like, I, you know, I learned this from this person, I learned this one. And I'm like, oh, that is amazing to have those people in your life. I didn't have that, right? Like my parents were, were successful, but in their own lanes, they were accountants and they, you know, had done some, they met at Goldman Sachs and they, you know, my dad had a very small company of five, six, seven people, but like, hadn't done anything on this scope and, and I just wasn't exposed to people early in my career that were interested in mentoring or, or, or doing those different things. And so um, I kind of went about it on my own and I didn't didn't read, didn't get exposed to those things. And so, um, but yeah, so I read those those Jim Collins books and that was amazing, but I kind of never really kept pursuing it and uh, didn't really make it a fun foundation of what we were doing there. And so yeah, when I came here and I realized that Rich had such a head start on me, even though he was younger, had done less work stuff, um, but he had read all these books and talked about how he had met a guy who was like, you should read one book a week. And, I was, and he's like, that changed my life. And I was like, I can read one book a week. And so at some point, it's just deciding to do the things that you know are the right things. Right. And one thing I've noticed a lot about these books that, uh, that speak about, you know, like creativity and like management styles and stuff. One thing that I found fascinating about Ed Catmull was how <clears throat> he was constantly surveying the environment around him and how he personally affected that environment and what he could do differently to make it better. And there was so much introspection on Ed Catmull's side. Do you have moments like that where you're looking at Princeton and you're thinking, all right, I need to change some things about what I'm doing to make everybody else change you know, what they're doing? I, you hold weekly sales trainings and you talk about what to do you know, in your personal life to make your professional life more copacetic and everything. Do you, do you have a lot of moments like that every week where you sit back and like, this is what I'm gonna do this week. I'm gonna make this change and see how this affects people. Um, not not to get like weird about it, but like I would say it it it's not even moments; it's a constant state of being. And, right. And what I mean by that is, whether it's my personal life, my professional life, or every interaction. At some point along the way, over the last few years, you know, it became very. I, I became. I, I finally accepted the fact that I couldn't change anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, which is actually the most freeing thing in the world. We talk about like that player versus victim mindset we talk about here all the time. It's like when you're when you're full player, it's like this this complete acceptance of like I cannot change how people experience me, right? So like you know someone someone give me give me um, feedback that I thought was wrong, and I immediately be like arguing with them like no no, no you're missing it like that's not what I mean I mean this thing it's like it doesn't matter what I meant. Right, like the answer is, I mean, it matters maybe if I need to hash something out in this moment, but I would do this thing where I would like try to convince the world it should interpret me this way. It's like, that's not how it works, right? And so it very much becomes, okay, what can I change about myself so that the world interprets me the way that I want them to, 
right? And and then and then that becomes about doing deep work on yourself and therapy and coaching and conscious leadership training, of which you know I spend at least two to three hours a week outside of meditation time. Uh, on personal development, trying to become the leader that's capable of getting us to 50,000 loans a year. And so, you know, well, I think, you know, I'll give it a quick story. Yeah, go ahead. And I apologize, I get excited. <laughs> no, I like stories, go ahead. So there's an employee at Princeton Mortgage who I think is super high potential, but for some reason is not as ambitious as I would like for him to be. And um, I was talking about some of these books, and he's like, oh, he's like, I just, I, you know, I, He's like, I just find those books so painful. And I'm like, oh, like, like what do you mean? Like, th these are books about like what we're doing here. And he's like, I just, you know, I had trouble reading them. And I remembered I'm, I'm reading this book right now called The Great Game of Business. And one of the things the guy writing that book said is he's like, one of, the whole point of that book is to teach everyone in the plant, because it's a manufacturing plant, about the actual business and how they make money and how it all works. Because if everybody understands that stuff and then you kind of gamify it, it, it leads to much better outcomes. But he says one of the real problems is that people aren't interested in business. And I was like, how could people not be interested in business? And then I had that conversation with this employee and I said to myself, I'm actually not even that interested in business. What I'm fascinated by is human behavior. And so I've always been fascinated by human behavior. I remember you know, being in middle school and like having a, a girlfriend of mine be upset about her relationship and call me on the phone. And I'd have, I just would be so interested in what was going on in there. I just wanted to understand like what what was going on with people and I wanted to really get a handle on that and then I became a psychology major in college because again I just wanted more introspection into human behavior and why we are who we are and um, and how much or little control we have over in the moment how we behave and then but we have a ton of control over time of what we expose ourselves to right and so then it becomes this mission to what can I expose myself to what books can I read what people can I be around what information can I, can I kind of the software I can get into my brain? The hardware is here, right? The mm -hmm. hardware is in, but what software can I download to, to that I'll respond in better ways and have better outcomes? And so, um, you know, so the answer is constantly that I am looking to uh, alter my behavior. Having said that, I'm still bad at it a lot of the time. I still get very caught up in right my things of right and wrong and you know i had an instance where i met somebody new this weekend in a, in a social situation and like she said something and like i kind of went at her a little and then i saw i see that she gets upset and I, like, I didn't want to make her upset but there's just another thing that like i was like that's not right you know and then i get like into my like self-righteous mode and had a couple drinks in me and i was like and then all of a sudden i could see her she getting really upset i was like you know what? i'm so sorry you know i was like but i had this moment like why am i even doing this what, what am i trying to win here and so um Tons of self-reflection. Yeah, I feel like that's so important to success in business, and it's something that I'm, I'm obviously new to in the in the corporate world. But uh, I, I've always I've taken time for self, you know, self-reflection. But <clears throat> I noticed reading in these books and watching you guys that, like, you know, you really do. It, it embodies the the player mindset because when you're the victim, you're thinking everything else outside of me is affecting me. When you're the player, you're thinking I'm affecting everything outside of me. And I can see that, you know, when you come in and I, I can tell that you're keyed into a lot, you know, your LOs and your sales team, and you kind of know what's going on, and you you know the right buttons to hit when you're doing your weekly sales training and you know giving advice. And do you find yourself um, ha reminding yourself when you're giving advice to take your own advice Did, or? Well, the best way to learn and to become better is to teach. Yeah. Right? And so I've been very grateful for the fact that I've had the opportunity to spend most of my career teaching and coaching, and it's the work that I'm most attracted to. Um, I love helping people get through different things. And 
So yeah, finding different ways to tell the story that resonate with different people. If you're talking to 20 people, you can tell that same piece of information six different ways and it will resonate with a different three or four people in the room every single time. Um, you know, one of the things I, I always say to like, you know, in my player or victim conversations, this is like a framework that just kind of appeared to me one day. It was like, listen, I was like, everybody is surrounded by good and bad things happening around them all the time, but it's like kind of invisible at first. But if you're looking for bad stuff, you will all only see all the bad stuff happening around you. And if you're looking for good stuff, you will only see all the good stuff happening around you. And so it's like, cool, well, what can I do to make me feel like I'm in a better place? It's like to see the good stuff. And, and we see that throughout human history. We see people in the worst possible situations and the worst of humanity uh, finding the good in it. And we see people who have everything and are constantly focused on the bad of it. And so it's not about what's happening to us. It's about how we... Uh, interact with what's happening with us and how we perceive it and how we and the the software right what we expose ourselves to and the thoughts that we have and the time we take to reflect on it that that changes our human experience and it changes how the rest of people experience us and so when I think about what my, my overall goal my overarching goal is I want to have a positive impact over the course of my life on as many people as possible right I want my funeral I want people there'd be a lot of people there say Mark helped me get to where I wanted to go well if that's really the ethos you live by you gotta, you gotta become a person that's capable of doing that, and so that 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 focuses my decision making, you know, in in a really, in a really strong way as well. That provides clarity, you know. Right. Do you think that? Uh, so you said that your parents were accountants, right? They were. And then you were a psychology major. Yes. So did you? I'm I'm curious what your plan was when you were when you were joining as a psychology major. Were you were you planning to go into the mortgage industry, or what were you thinking? So a couple of things. One is I, I, you know, I had my dad had a small accounting business, and the easiest, and he was successful, and the easiest thing in the world. Not, not, he, we were middle class, but I mean, it was when I was in college and fearful I'd ever be able to provide for my family. Like I was like, cool, maybe I'll try this accounting thing. And I took one accounting class uh, at Albright College, and uh, it was nine to eleven on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the teacher, like, it was English as a second language for her. The, the material was bad for me, and I nearly failed out before I dropped the class. And I was like, okay, cool, accounting's not, not the path. So, which I kind of knew, but, um, no, I mean, I went to college for psychology because, honestly, the, the work, you know, I'm one of those people, I'm not a visionary. The ideas don't come to me. I have to see it somewhere first. And so, um, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the people I was most attracted to, honestly, in, in middle school, high school, were the ones who like would talk about their feelings. And so then I ended up dealing with people who like, you know, went to the school psychologist or a different experience with this person or that person. And I remember thinking like, I could be a really great school psychologist. Like you know, I was the, 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 the person I'd been in contact with who I thought, thought was having the most positive impact on the most amount of people. So I was like, that's what I wanted to go be. I also knew that I wanted to make a bunch of money. And so I didn't have that all figured out, but I said, I'm gonna go to college, I'm gonna study how people think and whatever I end up doing, that will kind of lead to itself. And when I did learn over college, I know I wasn't going to go get my master's or my PhD. I didn't I did not thrive in a school environment. I knew I did better working. And so um, I came from school. I was sitting on the couch. And the first day, my dad looked at me when he came home. He didn't say anything. And the second day, he said, if you're on that couch again tomorrow, I'm kicking you out. He said, go get a job. I said, well, what, what does this do? He's like, well, you know, I have some clients like you, and they're in sales. He's like, and they do really well. You should try sales. So I went on uh, monster.com at the time, which is like 2004, and I put my resume up there, and immediately had all these like entry-level sales positions calling me up, and started out in insurance, and kind of took it from there. Um, a year a year after the insurance thing, I went looking for something different, found the mortgage industry, it was a call center, and everyone looked super happy and was doing super well, and I thought I could do that, and so that, the rest is history. And so you, you did the call center for a while, and you started your own business. 
So, well, so I did the call center in 2005, 2008, and then the world ended. And in June of 08, right. that company fell apart. And I had a couple different choices. I could go to like a smaller company that some of those guys offshot to, or I could find something completely different to do. Or the time I had my girlfriend and my friend Brett, and we were like, hey, you know, we think we can do this, right? And so at the time it was like, cool, do we go start our own mortgage company or do we become a branch of another mortgage company? At the time, we didn't know enough to do our own thing. We were like 25 years old. So we became a branch of a company called First Metropolitan Mortgage. Um, right away, we were doing better. Everybody else was kind of mourning over spilt milk, and we were desperate and trying to, you know, pave our way during this very difficult time. I mean, we actually opened August 8th of 2008, <clears throat> and it was Thanksgiving of 08 that the world, you know, officially at the end kind of fell apart. Uh, but we did that for three years, and then that company went out of business because mortgage companies were doing that a lot around that time. And then, um, and then it was like, okay, cool. We, we've kind of attached our cart to somebody else's horse enough. And so at that point, I went out and started raising money, and we started our own company um, in 2012, I guess. And, and then uh, did that for five years and sold that in 2017 uh, or 16, I guess. Stayed on the year that we had to as part of the contract of selling that. And then my plan was to move to Charleston, have an easier life. But I met Rich on the way. So all right, had you been to Charleston before, or you just? Yeah, we came here about two years early, two years before that on vacation. Um, Nicole was actually pregnant with our second kid at the time, and uh, we brought our friend who was our nanny and also my daughter down, and we came down for four or five days, and we just fell in love. You know, um, I knew I knew I really liked it here, but at the time we still had the business in New Jersey, and all of our friends and family there, and a lot of our friends and family worked for us in our business in New Jersey, and so we were kind of stuck there. Um, but then once we sold that and kind of did, that wasn't the right fit, it was like, hey, we're going to start over. It was like, well, why would we do it there, you know? And then we completed, I mean, we retiring to Charleston, but it was like, let's let's do it now. Yeah. And so you, you talk about, you know, you had the one mortgage un, mortgage company go under and then another one at the during the financial crisis. And when these moments happened to you in your career, was there a moment where you were like, I'm done with the mortgage industry, I'm going to do something else? Or were you always kind of like, all right, this happened, I'm going to keep moving forward, I'm going to find the next thing? Or Man, I, I'm, I'm not wired like everybody else. You know, I'm not wired for fear, and I'm not wired uh, for stopping. And so, um, it was like June of '08 when we like when our company was finally like, "Hey, we're going under," basically. And and um, and so <laughs> that was like on a actually what so it was Rocco Media was playing Tiger Woods in a playoff on a Monday because they like had been a tiebreaker or whatever and we went home for lunch to watch the end of the I guess it was the US Open tiebreaker or whatever I think it was the US Open and uh, probably right around now actually like this is probably this is actually probably all happened in uh in 2008 this month so like what it's 13 years ago 13 years yeah and, um, and me, Brett, and Nicole, we went and watched the tournament. We came back to work, and they called us into a meeting, and they were like, so we just let everybody know while you guys were at lunch that we're shutting down. We, like, had missed the big meeting. It was really funny. <laughs> and uh, and then um, uh, the next day, I had gone online, done the research for a branch manager thing, um, put a full business plan together, had submitted it, had talked to two recruiters, different companies, had it all approved, and we were headed down to Charlotte. I mean, it was like, it was like the... I was just ready, you know what I mean? As weird as that sounds. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just wired that once I'm in something, I'm in it until, until it's not fun for me anymore. But I'll tell you the, the fun part to me is the trying to do hard stuff. Um, you know, where, where the only time I heard wasn't having fun is when I worked for somebody that made me ask for permission every time I had to do something, you know, and 
uh, which is one of the wonderful things I think worrying about Princeton is if you have the initiative, you can go. You know, if you see if you see white space, take it. You know, um, and so um, I'm having a blast now. I was having a blast then, even when even as it was failing. You know, there were some there were some dark times where I was worried about my employees getting paid. You know, especially when that when those companies went under. It's like, do we have enough money to make payroll? And one company did. The first company I worked for did it did it right. The second company didn't, and we had a two year bankruptcy thing I had to work to get people paid on, but. Eventually, they got theirs as well. Um, but other than that, you know, it was just part of the journey. Right. Yeah. And so, living through the the financial crisis in two thousand eight in the financial industry, and then how did that? How does that compare to what we went through last year with COVID? Was it kind of was it a wildly different scenario, or was it you know similar? And you kind of knew how to navigate it because you've been through something before like that, or? I, I would say it was very different from an outside perspective and from an inside perspective it's almost hard for me to even know because i knew so little then and i know so much now that like my perspective on it is very different and the amount of control like not that i had a victim mindset about it then but the answer was like i don't even understand this i just know i need to go get another job you know like i, like, I need to like figure out how to, if, if i if i had understood what was going on in 2008 i probably would have done what a lot of other people did and gotten out but for me i was like i'm just gonna swim upstream and hard and so that was a really good lesson for me but um you know, with COVID, it was it was um, scary and how unknown things were, and there were a couple of dark months for the mortgage industry where like we really didn't know what was going to happen. You didn't even know you'd be able to close a loan. Um, but I will say this: that like you know, leave it to uh, you know Americans and even human beings just in general to like find a way. And so um, after those first couple of months, it was like, okay, cool, like this is our new reality. Let's do it and. You know, our company, I think, was uniquely set up to be able to do the work from home thing to begin with. We were already kind of spread out and we never really missed a beat. Um, so I will say this, that like in, in all those scenarios, there's a there's like a survival instinct that kicks in, which is like, I got to find a way to make this happen. Um, so that feeling was similar. But from a from a perspective situation, you know, it was mm, those instincts kick in, and I don't remember. I don't remember thinking about how it felt a lot of the time. I remember feeling, you know, I, I loved where I worked in two thousand eight. Um, that that first mortuary I had, like, I would have stayed there for the rest of my life, and I, I still have such a fondness in my heart for the people that work there. And so, it was devastating. You know, you had this place where everybody was in their twenties, and we were all working hard together and playing hard together, and we had beach houses together, and we we're like doing all this stuff, and like, I was living. You know, the first time in my life I had money. It was this amazing thing. I met my wife there, um, and. Uh, and so that was really sad on the relationship side of it. But from like a work perspective, it was like, cool, next thing up, you know, new opportunity. And, you know, when people talk to me about like retirement now or this age, you know, or like whatever, you know, the answer was like, I, I was talking to Rich earlier today and we were talking about how there's another company in the industry that like had a bunch of executives that were like in their last five or 10 years and they were talking about like coasting through the end. The company recently went public. And I was like, I don't think I could do that. And Rich was like, well, you know, you're not, you're not at that stage of your life. Maybe, maybe you would. He's like, I, I can't see myself doing that either, but you never know. And I'm like, all I could think about is if I hit that point where like I couldn't see what I was fighting for anymore, then I would just go fight a different fight. It's not about the money or anything else. Like, I love the fight. You know what I mean? And so if you take the fight out of me, and I, I had this happen when, I, when my company was acquired. I was still making really good money for the year I was there. I was miserable because I couldn't get to the next thing I wanted to do. Every, there was just... No one would let us run. You know, I mean, it was you had to get permission for everything. I love the fight. I love to run. I love to do all that stuff. That's that's what energizes me. Yeah, you don't strike me as a person who would be looking forward to retirement. No, I, <laughs> I mean, I, I might be looking forward to a day where um, I, at some point, I get to do something completely new. 
but like you know yeah to, you know if, if I if at 20 years from now we've done everything we wanted to do here like I'll I'll go fight a different fight but uh, that would be so exciting right like maybe I'll go coach high school football and see how good that is. like that who knows you know you just but uh, the the challenge of doing something amazing and getting to positively impact people in a way that helps them achieve greatness is something I mean, you know, the Olympics are coming up mm -hmm. I find myself watching this weekend I'm like so inspired by these people who spend their whole lives working so hard for something um, and so yeah that's that's kind of that's always kind of been what I was all about, even though I was never quite good enough to be an Olympian or even close. <laughs> well, most of us aren't. Yeah. Um, I, could, I could see you being a football coach. I, I had some coaches in my time that will stay with me forever with the good advice they gave me. And I, I, I still think about them sometimes. I'm like, oh, well, what would Coach Harden say to this? You know, what would he think about me sitting here and taking this and not stepping up and fighting back? Or Yeah, I mean, listen, leading young people, especially in group collective efforts like team sports, um, it's hard to think of work where there's a bigger permanent impact on people. You know, the people that my coaches, like, I can still hear them. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I can still hear things. I can still, I can still remember the way they made me feel on a certain day at a certain time, whether it was good or bad or otherwise. Um, those experiences shape you. Um, you know, and so yeah, I, the, I'm always looking for more opportunities like that. So speaking of like shaping people that you're that you're dealing with, I want to talk to you a little about the Princeton culture because we we. Here at Princeton, you know, it's it's all about culture, culture. This is, you know, freedom and responsibility. You know, tell tell me a little bit about the the Princeton culture that you guys sell here. You know, it's that we sell. That we, sell. <laughs> it's what we live by, right? Yeah, right. So culture is usually sold here. It's what we hire to, what we fire to, what we promote to. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll tell you, the freedom and responsibility is that that makes like a really good headline. But I actually think it sells so much of it short. Um, you know. I, I find that it is the thing that when I say it, it's the thing I get the most reaction. I'm like, oh, freedom and responsibility, it sounds awesome. It's like, it sounds awesome when somebody else has freedom and responsibility, but people like the freedom part and sometimes they don't love the responsibility part. But what it really comes down to is this. We are a group of people on an adventure together to try to do something great. And then in order to do something great, we decided that there were these rules that other companies that do great things followed um, that made sense to us and record our ethos and who we are, which is, you know, to, to there's a there's a plan to do something amazing and do it as a group of people um, that we've all that we all at the very beginning, I should say, decided that we were going to live by. And then the cost of being part of our cool thing that we're doing in this adventure is to follow our rules. Um, and so um, that was that was not very controversial. Um, you know, it hasn't been for the last three years, but um, I will say this, it's, it's very hard to have perspective on, you know, because other people come here, for instance, we had our quarterly planning meeting and because of COVID, we hadn't had one in a year and a half in person. So there's people that have been with the company for a while, even important jobs that had like not even met anybody else, hadn't been in the room, hadn't seen Rich do the Rich show yet, you know, and, and doing those different things. And, um, you know, and I was I was surprised by how impacted they were. People that like you know uh, never talk about how inspired they are, but later like, that was amazing. I'm so excited at this or this or this, and and really spent the whole first day and a half going over the culture, right, and kind of what that was. And to me, I live it and I know it and I teach it. Tell the new hires to come into the company, but they were like experiencing it as like a thing in person for the first time, and um, and they were so inspired by it because the answer is that. If, if you commit yourself to a set of rules that everybody else has committed themselves to, 
And those rules include things like radical candor and radical transparency and being the CEO of your life and work and um, you know uh, the limitless opportunity that comes with those things. Um, it starts to feel like you're in a really safe place because now everybody's behaving the same way and you understand the rules of the game. And there's safety, by the way, not in the results because we are a results or results-based organization and you have to deliver results to stay in our game. But but the rest of it feels safe because everybody knows what other people are thinking about them. And you've shared what you're thinking about everybody else and what you're thinking about the different topics. And it's all out there. And so there's no more managing perceptions. There's no more, is this person on my team? Or is this person here, this one there? Like intrinsically in that room, we are all on a journey to do something great. We have an abundance mindset about it. We all need to do whatever we can to help the other people towards winning our game. Um, we set our goals that way as a collective. and so. Um, that safety that comes with that allows people to do work that's the best work of their lives. And, and so when we think about what does it mean to create an environment motivated people can thrive, it is create a place where people do the best work of their lives. And it's hard and, they do, and it's taxing and you're doing something meaningful, but like, we, you know, whether someone's at Princeton for three years or 30 years, we want them to look back at the period they were here and say, that was the best work I ever did. Those are the best people I ever worked with. And if we can kind of make that a repeatable process by having our culture and our rules, I think there's a pretty good chance we'll be very successful. Yeah, the, the transparency here and the, the radical candor, like you mentioned, it, it's, it's new to me coming from the film industry where you have these different departments all working on the same show, but you don't, you don't divulge any information. You know, it's kind of like everybody's kind of out for themselves. It's, it's a strange working environment. And so, and I can, I can say that, you know, since I've come here and I've been dealing with, you know, being transparent and receiving feedback and all, I mean, I've, I feel like I've pushed myself harder here than I have before. And that's because, you know, I, I got comfortable in the film industry. I knew what I was doing. I didn't really have to show up and put a lot of effort into it every day. And this has been different. This has been really cool. And, and a lot of it, and the feedback and the transparency and knowing exactly where I stand has really helped me grow and, and, and you know be like alright I gotta light a fire under myself and really get working you know it is results based but it, it does feel like you're part of a, a team that's moving forward and I can really feel like you, got, you know I, like you said a lot of places sell culture but I can tell we really live it here yeah I mean you know I'd love to tell you I'm motivated by fear you know and I used to tell the story like you know if I don't get better somebody else will come take my job but the reality is it's not actually where my thoughts go and what motivates me my responsibility to everybody else who works here and their families and their ability to take care of their families, that is the that is um, a very motivating thing for me. I, I love the idea that I can have a positive impact on the size of the bonus that we get to give out to people that can change how they're able what they're able to do with their children and how they're able to take care of their families. And um, uh, so that that is super motivating and and that's a the cult and again it's not a family right it's a professional sports team right. right and so we talk about that a lot too because there's a cost the family is forever and you don't get to choose it sports teams get chosen and um and they're not forever intrinsically right but being part of an amazing team that accomplished something accomplished something great is something that people come back and celebrate together for the rest of their lives Right, you know, 50 years after so and so won the Super Bowl, the team will come back and, and celebrate. Right, so that's that's what we're going for. Yeah, and I, it's it's nice because you know a lot of places you don't have leadership where they're more focused on the their employees and the people that they're working with. It's more you know what's the bottom line. So it is refreshing to have you know leadership that is so invested in their employees' lives. It it it's really nice. Yeah, I mean, again, 
we're playing a game where the bottom line is the, is the scoreboard. Right. But what do we know, right? If everybody on a basketball team is looking out for to score the most points, the team loses, right? If everybody on a basketball team cares about the other people on that team and wants everybody else to succeed and and the goal is to is to create an environment where everybody in the team becomes the best player they can be and that's where the focus is, then the winning takes care of itself. And so that's that's the chosen focus for us. Right. Well, it's, it's nice to see it, like, you know, not only spoken but lived out, too. Appreciate um, that. So there's a question that I always ask on these podcasts, and uh, we've, it's usually an icebreaker, but I wanted to go ahead and ask it because I feel like you're probably going to run with it. But, um, and I think I know the answer, but I want to hear what you'll say. But, uh, Mark, what's your, what's your favorite movie and why? <laughs> so that's your icebreaker question? That's my icebreaker. Good to know you a little bit. It's funny. When I used to do group interviews, I used to bring people in. I used to ask them, what's the movie they've seen the most times? And uh, that, I thought, was a good icebreaker because people had some strange answers. That's a good one. Um, but the, uh, which my, my most times movie is Top Gun. Oh, of course. I've seen that a lot. But it's not my favorite. If I had to pick my favorite movie ever, and, and you know, it's funny, people like this movie, but I don't hear anybody else talk about it as their favorite, is Gladiator. Mm. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that, but, but the, I love the struggle, right? The, 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 I love the, uh, an overall commitment to excellence in everything that you do that you see in Maximus. And I also love, I think, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal of Commodus is like one of the great acting performances of all time because you see this person who is, he also wants to be great so bad, so badly wants to be great. And he's putting all of the work into it and he's coming at it in all of the wrong ways from all of the wrong places for all of the wrong reasons. And you see how that pollutes him and his path and leads to him becoming one person versus Maximus who's doing it the right way and is doing it as a leader of people and bringing people together and cares about his team, he ends up, you know, uh, achieving achieving greatness, right? Coming from, coming from nothing, he achieves greatness, whereas Commodus has been giving everything and can never get there. He can't even get his own father's love, right? And so that, that dichotomy of like, hey, this is the right way, this is the wrong way to live, and that leads to better outcomes, I think it kind of... You know, I'm not saying the first time I saw the movie, I thought it through that way, but I knew I was attracted to it that way. And in the 50 or so times I've probably seen it since, that's kind of what I've come to. I knew you'd have a great answer for that. I also love Gladiator. I don't remember the first time I saw a lot of movies, but I clearly still remember sitting in that theater and, and watching Gladiator, especially when the, he swings the two swords and chops the guy. I was a kid, uh, and I was like, oh, my yeah. God. But, uh, yeah, it's, I knew that you'd have a great answer for that, and, and you did. You exceeded my expectations for wow. your answer. Nice. I'll take it. So. But, um... Guys, Mark, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. This has been an awesome episode. Um, Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man, let's do it again sometime. Let's do it. Cool. Thanks for joining us this week on Effortless Conversations, and uh, we'll have another guest next week.